Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon. My name is Emily Gao, and I'm the director of the DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society at the Heritage Foundation. As America seeks to overcome the challenges that have been presented by the COVID-19 virus on both lives and livelihoods, we at the Heritage Foundation wanted to place a special focus on seniors for two reasons. First, because of the unique challenges that COVID-19 poses to some seniors. And second, because of the important role seniors can play in educating on how to protect themselves from the health risks of the virus, the financial scams that are virus related, and on how the virus responses create opportunities for healthcare reform so that our healthcare system better serves seniors and all Americans. I'm delighted that we have three leading experts today on aging, financial fraud, and healthcare. They are going to provide overviews of how the federal government is addressing the virus and its impacts on seniors, as well as practical steps that seniors can take to strengthen their support systems, to protect themselves from financial fraud, and to support healthcare reform. We will have an interactive question and answer session where you can type questions into your browsers for the speakers to address after all three speakers have made their brief remarks. I will introduce each speaker before their presentation. To begin with, we have Lance Robertson. He is the Assistant Secretary for Aging uh, at the uh, Department of Health and Human Services. And he is the Administrator for Community Living. Lance Robertson was appointed to serve as the Assistant Secretary for Aging and ACL's Administrator in 2017. His vision for the Administration for Community Living focuses on five pillars. First, supporting families and caregivers. Second, protecting rights and preventing abuse. Third, connecting people to resources. Fourth, expanding employment opportunities. And fifth, strengthening the aging and disability networks. Mr. Robertson's leadership in the fields of aging and disability began in Oklahoma, where he served for 10 years as the Director of Aging Services within the state's Department of Human Services. Prior to that, he spent 12 years at Oklahoma State University, where he co-founded the Gerontology Institute and served as the Executive Director of the nation's largest regional gerontology association. He earned his undergraduate degree from Oklahoma State University and a Master of Public Administration degree from the University of Central Oklahoma and he is a veteran of the United States Army. We're delighted to welcome you, Assistant Secretary Robertson. Please go ahead. Emily, hey, thanks so much. It's good to be with all of you. Thank you for this opportunity. I thought I'd start off and just give um, our listeners just a little bit of background about the Administration for Community Living, or ACL. We are part of the Department of Health and Human Services, and we were actually created in 2012. And of course, we exist to help older adults and people with disabilities live independently in their communities. Again, our name, I think, is a good foreshadowing of that goal. So how do we do that? Uh, primarily, we do that by funding programs that provide services that help people uh, stay healthy and active and which provide them assistance with um, you know, most of what they need um, as they age so that they can, again, remain independent in their own community. We also invest, in addition to programming, though, in research, education, and innovation to make sure that our programs are both effective and efficient. Uh, one great thing about ACL, I think we're a good example of that mantra, federally supported, state managed, and locally executed. Because most of ACL's programs operate through partnerships with um, state governments and networks, and we're talking about more than 22,000 community-based organizations. 
So we don't do services directly as a federal partner, but again, we send that money to states and local communities. And that decentralized approach really gives states that flexibility to meet the unique needs of their citizens. I think another great thing about our program is that the dollars that we invest really across all nearly three dozen programs generate several more in terms of match for state and um, local funding. So really, again, it's a win across the board. And the work that we have been doing has really never been more important, Emily. Uh, as we know, there are more older adults and people with disabilities than ever before, and both population numbers are increasing. Another key stat to know is that 94% of older Americans live in the community, often in their own home. So again, community living. Uh, we know that people, of course, are happier and healthier when they can live in their own community. It's also a lot less expensive uh, to get people just a little bit of help in their home so that they can avoid hospitals or nursing homes. You know, one example of that work, uh, which saves our medical system money, is falls prevention. By helping make sure that homes are fall proof and through programs that help older people improve and maintain their balance, their core strength and flexibility, we reduce the number, the number one cause of hospitalization for older adults and that's falls. Um, one of our biggest programs pivoting slightly is meals. We feed a lot of older Americans, uh, both in their homes and in places like community centers. Um, this particular program, as we all know, really ties into the critical fact that poor nutrition leads to poor health. So we need to make sure that we are doing all we can to feed older adults so that they stay out of the hospital and um, remain healthy. So there are many, many other programs that uh, we operate here at ACL that address so many critical issues, things like transportation, chronic disease self-management, reducing social isolation, and so much more. And I am a big believer in small government, so I can tell you that ACL is a great example of how small government, with the money we're appropriated, can be very effective. So turning now quickly to the COVID-19 pandemic, um, this crisis certainly has been particularly difficult for older adults. In addition to the uh, much higher risk of serious illness, uh, social distancing has also created unique hardships for this population. So we are the federal agency at ACL that has the primary responsibility to advocate on behalf of older Americans. And we've been working with our colleagues at FEMA and CDC and CMS, a couple of sister divisions in HHS, and really all across the federal government to make sure that the, their needs, the needs of older adults are front and center in our response and that the network of community organizations that provide the services they depend on are included as we address the needs of the healthcare system. But um, as we work to protect America's older adults from COVID-19, we must also remember that health is not one dimensional. Uh, measures to slow the spread of the disease have also created unique hardships for America's seniors. Services that many of them depend on to live independently have become limited or have temporarily shut down. So it's become more difficult for families to assist loved ones who live alone, those family caregivers. And we all know that um, America's seniors are um, tremendous contributors to making our country great. So as we continue to work through those challenges, our commitment um, remains stronger than ever. We owe them. We wanna make sure that they are taken care of in a way that they certainly deserve. Um, social isolation. Studies have shown that social isolation among seniors is a big problem for many, and certainly it impacts their health and their well-being. Now, traditionally, our senior centers would help address that problem, but of course, those um, public gatherings have pretty much halted, although some are reopening. Um, older adults in long-term care facilities also, it's important to note, really have not had any personal visits from families, family members, or friends. So, you know, really a, a combination of challenges here. Um, even at home, it's a sad fact as well that seniors, um, in some cases, are living with abusers, and now they have less contact with outsiders who would normally report suspected abuse and to help initiate intervention. So again, those are just some of the serious issues. But on a real positive note, I'm happy to say that thanks to the Families First and CARES Act supplemental funding, we've really been able to pump a lot of additional dollars out to support these programs that are so critical, $1.2 billion to date. And again, those uh, dollars help support ongoing efforts to help seniors and people with disabilities. And those states really, um, as partners, have been doing a great job of distributing these funds to community-based organizations, and they're really helping. Um, so a couple of quick examples. And again, I'm just so proud of the resiliency of our aging and disability network across the country. Again, more than 22,000 partners we work with. And they've really been um, just doing an omens job at creating innovative ways that continue to meet the needs of people that we serve. 
Um, and again, it's amazing to think of all those success stories that are out there. You can find them on our website at acl.gov. acl.gov, you'll see a, a link for COVID-19. But let me just highlight a couple for you. Uh, one is ACL's Long-Term Care Ombudsman. And this particular program really is designed to help assist nursing home residents and families with a loved one in a facility. And we're finding ways through that program to stay connected, such as having um, nursing home staff um, walk a tablet from room to room so our professionals and volunteers can check in on residents vis visibly. Um, you know, and our network also on the meal side is just doing a phenomenal job, bringing meals to the doorstep of those in need. Uh, several different state examples. Florida has a Meals of Love program, and they just served their 100,000th meal since the crisis began. Michigan has a Q-Box, stands for Quarantine Box program, and they've been delivering um, basically in one box 22 healthy meals. And the cost for that for us is only $28. So very innovative, very low cost, high impact. Nevada's um, Delivering with Dignity program is helping um, keep restaurant employees working. And they've also delivered through that program well over 50,000 meals in the last several weeks. Uh, Nebraska has an area agency on aging that really has been doing a great job also in partnering with um, businesses and restaurants to help deliver meals. And they've been doing theme-oriented baskets um, to older adults in rural counties. Um, so again, it just really helps with that um, touch point. And then California is doing a good job with a one-generation drive-through pantry, which um, they're able to provide just countless numbers of seniors um, food in a safe manner. And then so many states, Ohio, Maryland, Rhode Island, many others um, are really resilient aging networks who are systematically calling older adults to check in and just say hello, because again, that's so imperative. So we're glad they're still able to do that. Um, finishing up with some reopening comments, while I've talked about some challenges and some successes that I've observed, again, I wanna encourage you to visit our website. And I do feel confident that our seniors um, are going to be aided by a responsible reopening of our society. I think it's really gonna help them. And this really is not about health versus the economy, but it's about health versus health, which again is a concept first laid out by my boss, Secretary Alex Azar. Um, just as the efforts to suppress the COVID-19 um, were about health initially, so too is health now at the center of our need to reestablish the normal interactions of society. So for example, according to Medicare, some things we gotta get back on track. Breast cancer surgeries are down two thirds since January, because again, how hospitals had to pivot, but we know those same medical issues exist out there. So we've got to get back on track. Um, as Secretary Azar said, we need to get the balance right. So really, again, it's about a balancing um, the health risks of COVID-19 against the health, social, and economic costs of keeping Main Street closed. So, you know, reopening, as we all know, is gonna be happening state by state. It's, um, it's that sort of respectful process that as a federal partner, we're gonna support. But it is important for everyone to look at the real costs and all the benefits as well, and to keep a pulse as decisions are being made. But I'm confident that America's aging and disability networks can meet the challenge as our country reopens. And uh, we'll be working with them to help share innovations that we uh, know are working well so other communities can benefit and then to tackle new issues as they arise. So, you know, moving forward, um, the health and well-being of older adults will remain a priority for this administration. And as we get the balance right to remain committed to support those we have always supported. And um, I just wanna end by saying, if anyone needs any assistance of any type, we do have a nationwide toll-free number. It's our elder care locator number. That phone number is 1-800-677-1116. You have it um, displayed before you. Give us a call if we can help you. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you so much, Lance. It's very encouraging to hear all of the positive things that are being done in response to COVID-19. And now I'd like to turn to Lois Greisman. She is the Associate Director at the Bureau of Consumer Protection at the Federal Trade Commission. Ms. Greisman heads the Division of Marketing Practices in the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection. Under her management, Marketing Practices leads the FTC's law enforcement initiatives, tackling telemarketing fraud, including do not call and robocall enforcement, fraudulent business and investment opportunity schemes, including multi-level marketing, mail fraud, including sweepstakes and lotteries, illegal spam and internet frauds, including technical support scams. Ms. Greisman also directs the FTC's work to curb fraud in connection with different payment systems. 
Since 2018, she has also served as the FTC's Elder Justice Coordinator. Prior to joining the FTC, she worked in private practice in Washington, D.C., and she received her bachelor's degree from Brown University and her law degree from George Washington University. Ms. Greisman, thank you so much for joining us. Please go ahead. Thank you, Emily. My thanks to you and to the Heritage Foundation for hosting this program. Uh, I have to begin with a disclaimer. The views I express are my own, not those of the commission or any individual commissioner. Let me just do a little bit on the FTC. It's an independent agency with two complementary missions, competition or antitrust work and consumer protection. My work, as you've heard, is on the consumer protection side. Uh, and, and broadly, that part of the agency covers issues ranging from data security, privacy to illegal robocalls and get-rich-quick scams. Uh, I think of the FTC as a strong civil prosecutor and one with an enormous policy plate. Among the many things the agency does is takes in reports uh, or complaints from consumers about what they're experiencing in the, in the marketplace. These complaints go into an online secure database that we call the FTC's Consumer Sentinel Network. FTC receives reports directly from consumers, and also there are a number of public and private entities that contribute data. These include the Postal Inspection Service, State Attorneys General's offices, Microsoft, MoneyGram, Western Union, uh, and the Better Business Bureaus, among others. Last year, the Consumer Network, the Consumer Sentinel Network received more than 3 million consumer reports. What happens to this information? It's used by law enforcement at the federal, state, and local level to support cases challenging illegal conduct. The information is also critical because it enables us to identify patterns and trends and analyze them, and we, we use those analyses to inform our strategic planning and also to undertake outreach uh, in communities. Part of those analyses include um, um, looking at the different age of those who, who report to us. Providing age if you file a report is, is done on a totally voluntary basis, and roughly 45% of those who, who report to us do include age information. So contrary to what many people think, adults age 60 and older are less likely than younger adults, those 20 to 59, they're less likely to report losing money to fraud. Younger adults reported losing money more often, but, and this is a major but, when older adults do report losing money, the dollar loss amounts are much higher than those for younger adults. And particularly, we see that people aged 80 and older reported losing the most money. Now, the slide that I think you'll, you're able to see reflects the COVID-19 uh, complaints that have been received in Sentinel. And in looking at that slide, what you, what you see are there are more than 91,000 so far with some large dollar losses. This information is also provided on the FTC's website and it's updated on a regular basis. The leading category of fraud, online shopping. Think of the face masks that's, that were ordered and never arrived, or think of the face masks that arrived but are not N95 compliant as was represented. Elsewhere on the site, this is explored, explored data. Elsewhere on the site, you'll see we break out the COVID-related complaints by age. And again, what we see there are large median dollar losses reported by older adults. And those 80 and older are reporting the highest median uh, losses. But I do want to emphasize that all age groups are reporting problems. It's not just older adults that are losing money to COVID-related scams. The next slide. Next slide, please. Um, well, the next slide, which you'll see, there you go. Thank you shows the FTC's dedicated webpage to the coronavirus. It too is updated on a regular basis. And this serves up rich information about the types of scams we're seeing. And, and it includes links to our educational outreach materials. And all of this information is available in Spanish as well as English. False or unsupported health-related claims about goods and services are prevalent based upon the consumer reports and our own monitoring in the marketplace. Um, because older adults are at particular risk, some of these scams may well disproportionately affect them. Specifically, we see various treatment, cure, prevention claims from pills, ointments, IV therapies, and more. An important part of the FTC's work in tar is targeting companies that make claims without the scientific proof to back them up. 
In fact, since early March, the FTC has issued more than 200 warning letters to marketers making COVID-19 health claims for their products and services. Many of these letters were issued jointly with the FDA. The letters tell companies to immediately stop making their claims for products, that their claims that their products that can treat, prevent, or cure the coronavirus. Recipients are also told to, told to notify the FTC within 48 hours of the specific actions they've taken to address the agency's concerns. Letters also note that if the false claims don't cease, the commission may seek a federal court injunction and an order requiring money to be refunded to consumers. In fact, in April, FTC did just that. It announced a case against Whole Leaf Organics for claiming to treat coronavirus and cancer without any proof that it could do either. In a similar vein, the FTC has sent two rounds of warning letters to multi-level marketers asserting that either the marketers and their distributors are making unsupported claims that their products treat or prevent COVID-19. The letters to some MLMs also went a critical step further where we saw that the MLM or their distributors were trying to recruit people to join, preying upon those who had lost their jobs and saying people could make lots of money working from home. That's simply not true. Most people who join MLMs make little or no money. Scammers also have taken to robocalls to get into the coronavirus business, offering the same fake cures, prevention solutions, test kits, et cetera, that we see in other medium. Uh, some of these robocalls do appear to disproportionately affect older adults. For example, we've seen calls that tout special access for Medicare recipients uh, to get access to test kits sooner rather than later. We're also seeing different twists on the standard Social Security Administration robocall scams, new tw twist relating to the coronavirus. To address these illegal robocalls, the FTC, again, at least initially, has sent out a number of rounds of warning letters to VoIP service providers, voice over internet service providers that are transmitting or sending those robocalls using coronavirus related messages. These letters warn recipients that assisting and facilitating illegal robocalls is against the law. Like the other warning letters, um, recipients were told to stop the illegal calls within 48 hours. A number of these uh, robocall warning letters were sent jointly with the FCC, which added extra kick. We've also seen government stimulus scams and schemes impacting all ages. Even before the ink was dry on the CARES Act, scammers have been targeting people with fake relief checks and schemes, exploiting these government programs and payments. As a result, the FTC, FTC has seen a real spike in identity theft reports to it that are related to the pandemic. Specifically, scammers have used other people's information to claim people's unemployment benefits as well as stimulus funds. In a slightly different vein, but I think of relevance here, I want to flag a, a consumer alert that the FTC issued in May about reports of nursing homes and assisted living facilities making residents sign over their stimulus checks to the facility just because they are on Medicaid. In fact, the CARES Act makes crystal clear those funds belong to the recipient, not to the facility. So turning to the last slide, stay informed. This gives you important information on the links you need. Uh, in particular, if we can go to the last slide, please. In particular, how to sign up for the FTC's consumer alerts. Um, and other critical government links. And I also want to briefly mention Pass It On, which is the FTC's signature education piece for older adults. It's especially important now, it's based upon research that older, particularly older active adults, they want to be the source of information in their communities and their families. They want to be the person someone turns to and says, hey, I just received a call, what do you think of this? So I want to pitch that and urge you all to look for it. With that, I thank you very much. Thank you very much, Lois. That's excellent information for our audience. Thank you for all that you're doing to combat fraud for many Americans, especially older Americans. And now I'd like to turn to my colleague, Nina Ocherenko-Schaefer. 
Ms. Schaefer is a well-known champion of patient choice and robust competition in America's healthcare insurance markets. She returned to the Heritage Foundation as a senior research fellow in health policy in the organization's Institute for Family, Community, and Opportunity after serving in the Trump administration as senior counselor to the secretary at the U.S. Department of Health and Services. In that high-level capacity, Ms. Schaefer advanced presidential and secretary policy priorities at the agency, including managing the development of the HHS response to the opioid abuse crisis. Ms. Schaefer is a studied expert on healthcare reform on both the federal and state levels. She has researched and advised on health reform, Medicare, Medicaid, the state children's health insurance program, and prescription drugs. She also served as Heritage's Director of Health Policy Studies previously and was named Preston A. Wells Jr. Fellow in Health Policy in, in 2012. Ms. Schaefer also received her bachelor's degree in political science from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and she resides in Washington, D.C. with her husband and son. Uh, Nina, thank you very much for joining us and we turn it over to you. Great, thank you, Emily. Um, I thought it might be useful to start by reminding us all what we know about the virus. Um, if you're like me, the flood of information on a daily and for that matter, hourly basis can be very overwhelming. But this information is really important as the country continues to balance reopening with protecting the health and safety of its citizens. So what do we know? My heritage colleagues, Norbert Michelle and Doug Badger published a deep dive paper into the data. I'm going to take a few minutes to highlight some of their findings. First, the cases of COVID-19 are geographically concentrated by region, state, and by county. In May, 10 states accounted for almost 70% of all cases, and 30 counties accounted for 55% of all deaths. Second, the overwhelming number of hospitalizations and deaths are among older individuals. In May, the highest rate of hospitalization were for those over the age of 85. 95% of death, deaths occurred in people over the age of 55, and 80% were over the age of 65. Third, while age is a leading risk factor, those individuals with comorbidities, conditions like hypertension, diabetes, and obesity are at greater risk. In March, 75% of hospitalizations were over the age of 50, and 89% had at least one other underlying medical condition. Fourth, these individual, um, those individuals in nursing homes are at greater risk. There have been a variety of uh, research attempts to dive into the numbers and try to catalog um, the data in nursing homes since this has started. Generally, uh, the estimates range between 40 to 50% of all deaths had occur have occurred in nursing homes. Fifth, hospital capacity has not as been as overburdened as originally projected. U.S. hospital occupancy rates is low. There is a 57% occupancy for inpatient beds and 59% for ICU beds. This is two to three times the capacity of most European countries. So what should be done? In April, the Heritage Foundation launched the National Coronavirus Recovery Commission. This commission, led by Heritage President Kay James, aimed to strike the right balance between reopening the economy and protecting the health and safety of its citizens. This five-phase recovery plan focuses on encouraging the return to normal activities at a regional level based on sound data. Two, refocusing on slowing the spread of the virus through testing, reporting, and contact tracing. Three, building up the science for treatment, therapeutics, and a vaccine. Four, developing a robust economic plan for recovery. And finally, reducing future risk by targeting responses where outbreaks hit and prioritizing protections for those most vulnerable. The final report of the commission is being released today at three o'clock at the Heritage Foundation, and I encourage you all to join this event. One of the major takeaways from the report is that it requires an all of society approach. This includes actions at the federal level, state and local officials, the private sector, and in civil society. With regard to older Americans, there are a few best practice recommendations that I wanted to share with you. First, for older Americans on Medicare, 
At the federal level, the administration and Congress took quick action to lift barriers to telehealth so that Medicare enrollees could get the care from the comfort and safety of their homes. Making this access more permanent would be a worthwhile change moving forward. There is also the need, as has been noted earlier, to reopen hospitals and other medical facilities for non-COVID and non-emergency care so that individuals like those on Medicare do not delay the care that they need when they need it. For older Americans in nursing homes and in long-term care facilities, states play a critical role in making sure that the nursing homes are prepared and have proper plans in place to prevent an outbreak. For example, some of the problems in the nursing homes were due to nursing homes being required to accept COVID patients upon release from a hospital. Waiving these requirements, as many states have done now, related to readmitting residents, is an, as well as readmitting residents, is an important uh, role for the states to take. Also, the unnecessary hospitalization of patients in nursing facilities and long-term care facilities to see if they can stabilize patients within the nursing home rather than transporting patients back and forth to hospitals is another needed reform. Plans also need to be in place for nursing homes to actually control when an outbreak does hit. For example, testing, contact tracing, and separating infected from the non-infected is a critical aspect of this. And this includes not only for residents, but also for the workers who are in the residence. It's very important that nursing homes have a better handle on those that um, have the infection and those that don't and have plans in place to separate the two um, if they are in the nursing home. Finally, states need plans to share information. This is yet another challenge that has been, uh, that the country has faced when it comes to reporting. We need better reporting data from the nursing homes to make better informed responses moving forward. As the country reopens, the private sector also plays a key role for older working Americans. Employers should consider policies to help accommodate high-risk populations in their workforce. For example, further extending telehealth options, I mean teleworking options, staggering shifts, and making other protective measures like hand sanitizers and masks readily, readily available to their staff is important. Finally, for all of us, including older Americans, the role of civil society, nonprofits, churches, neighbors, and communities has been indispensable. There is a need for this to continue, perhaps even more now as the country continu continues to reopen to ensure that those most vulnerable have access to needed care and services, such as transportation, meal deliveries, mask dona donations, the list goes on and on. As the country begins to reopen, we need to make sure that the support for those who still can't um, join uh, the opened economy are still protected and cared for. To conclude, early lessons from this pandemic can actually help longer-term health reforms and underscore some important principles. First, healthcare is local and it necessitates a state-by-state -state approach. Two, there is a need for review and, and, and adaptation for regulatory reform to remove unnecessary obstacles and improve patient access to care and services. And finally, there is a growing desire for patients and doctors to have more control over the dollars and decisions and the delivery of care that they're receiving. These are all critical components to larger healthcare reform efforts that Heritage has been involved in over the past decade. The country is not out of the woods yet, but by using data and core principles and a whole of society approach, the country can continue its in reopening in ways that still save lives and livelihoods moving forward. Thank you, and I look forward to the discussion. Thank you very much, Nina. We have a few questions coming in, and uh, would read, I'll read each one of them out, and please continue to send in your questions. So the first question is, how can each of us help keep seniors safe during the coronavirus and maintain social distancing? Um, one issue I'll just mention that we've addressed in the National Coronavirus Recovery Commission report is those who live in multi-generational multi households can take uh, precautions 
so as not to infect those whom they live with. Um, and some of those more detailed precautions that they can take are listed in the report. So the question again for the panelists is, how can each of us help keep seniors safe during the coronavirus and maintain social distancing? Assistant Secretary Robertson, would you like to answer that question? Sure, and I'd be happy, of course, to see what other panelists might um, want to chime in and share. Of course, really, as your federal partner, we would just emphasize that you know, there has to be a maintained diligence around you know the guidance that has been offered uh, by the CDC. Of course, really, when it comes down to it, it's just using common sense. We need to make sure that people are being safe in terms of their activities, um, particularly if you're an older adult, obviously social distancing, and then just being mindful that um, you know, there's a balance. We also don't want you to just quarantine and be locked up for months on end. I think there's an opportunity to safely get out of your home, to get some fresh air, um, to be a part of more um, broader activities that really can, um, again, just make you feel better and, and really, I think, have a pretty phenomenal impact on your health. Um, and then again, I think for those that could be potential carriers who are not older adults themselves, obviously be very careful. Just make sure that you know, you're, again, complying with the hand washing and all the different um, guidance that is out there and is pretty well known about how to safely interact with older adults because you certainly wouldn't want to be a carrier. Thank you, Assistant Secretary Robertson. Would anyone else like to add to that? I would add it's about communication and information. I mean, we, from the FTC's viewpoint, we are very worried about protecting older adults from scams that might be disproportionately affecting them or even targeting them. And uh, once I was on the screen earlier, I'd encourage people to subscribe to consumeralerts.gov uh, at FTC.gov. That will give them current information on what's happening out there that they can share with others. And that's all useful important communication that keeps them in touch even though they still may be socially distancing themselves. Thank you. Thank you. I will just um, elaborate on what I mentioned at the beginning about multi-generational households. Here is the full recommendation from the Commission, the National Coronavirus Recovery Commission. The Commission also recommends that civil society leaders give particular care to communities that live in multi-generational households. The elderly are particularly at risk for lethal outcomes if they contract COVID-19. Churches and other organizations should work to ensure that young people in those communities understand the importance of protecting the vulnerable and their families. They sh should also ensure that all community members understand the need to combine going back to work with continuing to protect the more vulnerable who are known to be at special risk for contracting the disease, the elderly, those in nursing homes, and those with pre-existing conditions. And another question that we received um, was whether these uh, current requirements for social distancing are overly cautious and whether they, and if all concerned parties are using safety protocols why are so many organizations being overly cautious with the elderly in the return to normal activities? Well, I'm, I'm happy to jump in. I'm certainly not a medical expert. Um, I think that it just underscores how individuals really need to be mindful of themselves, their surroundings, and their comfort levels. And I think that's one thing that we have seen throughout the, re the response to COVID is that you might have two older Americans, same age, same, um, same location even, same region, same state, same county, but have different approaches for how they feel that they can safely engage within, within the society again. And I think um, we, in particular, we don't want policymakers dictating how everyone must act um, but we need to make sure that the government is providing the right kind of guidance so that individuals can make informed decision for themselves and with their families and loved ones that they interact with. Thanks, Dina. We have another question here. As a senior with COPD, do I need to stay at home until there is a vaccine? 
Assistant Secretary Robertson, would sure. you like to respond? Yeah, so, so here at the Department of Health and Human Services, we've recently launched something called Operation Warp Speed. Um, hopefully folks have heard of that. That's really a race towards that vaccination that was just referenced in the question. The reality though, is we're still quite a ways off. So I think that um, despite having COPD again acknowledged as yet another chronic condition that could exacerbate um, um, you know, your, your challenges of COVID-19, I would still say though that that person really can exhibit um, the proper safe measures. Um, I, again, I am not sure that um, another six months of quarantining uh, will actually prove to be um, just as healthy as um, trying to do so to avoid contracting the virus. So again, I would say there has to be sensible balance. Um, you know, certainly again, like Nina had referenced in the previous question, I'm not a physician and I would never challenge um, any of the guidance that's been put out. I think the folks, CDC and others who have been really, I think very clear and very helpful in offering guidance for everyone in almost every situation you have to go on the CDC website um, and really seek out the best guidance for that particular situation. But ultimately, again, I think for the older adult asking that question, I don't think it's as simple as yes or no. I think it's a matter of, you know, where is that balance? Where can you also um, engage socially in a safe way that really can kind of be reinvigorating for you and your health versus again, just quarantining for another number of months in your home, um, again, would be sort of my response to that question. Thank you. As you put it, it's not health versus finances, it's health versus health. Um, so there's another question about the confusing data the public has been receiving about asymptomatic transmission of the coronavirus. Can anyone speak to that and what is what is the accurate information about asymptomatic transmission? Um happy to, to jump in. I think that with everything around this virus, everything is so fluid and ever-changing. We're learning new things each day. People are studying. The more data and information people have, the more that we can learn about this virus. Um, so I think while, yes, it's always tempting to jump on what the first news, the first news report is every day on the top of your screen, um, I think that these the problems that we're facing with them, this pandemic are far deeper and probably um, far more complicated than simply to say everything is black or white, yes or no. And so again, underscoring um, even what uh, Assistant Secretary Robertson said, um, we need to make sure that pe people are informed and that in, in many of these cases, going to a trusted uh, source for you, whether that's your physician, perhaps a family member, where, where older Americans can actually get the information and talk through what this means for their individual situation is probably a very important and critical aspect of this. Thank you, Nina. The next question is, are there any particular concerns uh, that older Americans should be aware of as we move into the hot weather months? I would just um, chime in on this front. Um, I would say it's probably what folks need to be, the phase that we're in right now is really about reopening. And so a lot of what we have been living in under the past three to four months are changing. And when you have those types of changing and restrictions are being lifted and businesses are going back, again, people need to be informed and aware of their surroundings and aware of and being mindful of their surroundings, not just for themselves, but those people that are around them. So um, certainly I think too, as people want to go out and get fresh air and the weather is turning nice, um, those are very valuable things for, for people to be engaged in. Um, but we are in a different phase and so people should be aware of what those phases will mean for their individual life. Thank you. Another question we received is, if you strip out the nursing home deaths due to the coronavirus, is the mortality rate for the older population as bad as we have been led to believe? I'm happy to jump in. And, you know, obviously at the Department of Health and Human Services, that responsibility um, as your federal partner falls with us. And, you know, really in, in terms of the mortality rate, those numbers are true that, that people have been seeing. The mortality rate certainly is much higher. And um, there has been certain 
concentrations of uh, deaths in nursing homes and to address that. I know the department really has um, been doing a tremendous amount of work to help support nursing homes across the country. You know, we have in partnership with FEMA made over 7,500 deliveries um, with critical supplies to nursing homes. Um, obviously, there's a real emphasis on supporting them in ways that they need. Uh, CMS is standing up a, a coronavirus task force on safety and quality in nursing homes. So, you know, really, I think there's this uh, both industry and then, of course, as your federal partner, a commitment to do all that we can to address it. Um, the reality is that's a highly vulnerable population. That's why they're in nursing homes, which, of course, means they're uh, you know their health resiliency is very low so a virus of any type flu or or um, bird flu anything coronavirus anything unfortunately is going to be um, sort of um, far more widespread and impactful in a nursing home setting so we all have to remain diligent in keeping um, those seniors protected to this to the extent that we can but i mean again the, the news isn't misleading anyone the the significance of what's happened in america's nursing homes is there it's real um, but also i think the response has been as um as pointed and as admirable as one could expect. Thank you. Another question is, even when there is a vaccine, there will likely be a triage process as to who gets it first, second, et cetera. It will likely be some time before the vaccine is universally available. What are your thoughts? I would defer to the medical experts on this. Yeah. Well, I mean, what, what we do know is there are over 200 companies racing now to develop a vaccine. I, I think all of us ought to be patient and just waiting to see what the results of that look like, not presuming that there will be um, an inability to ramp up supply. I, I've always been amazed by what the pharmaceutical industry can do. Uh, so again, I, I think there may be some sensible approach right out of the gate, but I I wouldn't be overly concerned at this point that uh, some somebody won't have access to a vaccine for an extended period of time. But again, that's just speculation at this point is we're only in the middle of June and they still have some months ahead before vaccine is finalized. Sorry, I think I was on mute there. Um, I have a question, which is, do you have any um, best practices that you can identify, whether they come from any of the 50 states or from another country? What are some of the things that you think, not only government, but civil society have done the best to protect older Americans? I didn't hear the first part of the question, Emily. I'm sorry. The question is about best practices. Uh, would you like to identify any additional best practices that you have seen taken either by government officials or by civil society in the response to the coronavirus? Both, and feel free to address both the medical side and the um, financial fraud, and also the social isolation as well, either from another either from one of the 50 states in America or even from another country? Well, I'll, I'll start off. I think the states and federal government have, have been enormously proactive um, in terms of both outreach, getting information, pushing out information to at, at the grassroots level, not just at, at higher levels, um, spreading the word and also through targeted law enforcement. I think, I think education and law enforcement complement one another. And I think you've also seen law enforcement taking diff slightly different tactics. FTC's use of warning letters, for example, is not something we've typically done. We've used it as a tool, but in this context, it's proved particularly fast and efficient. But we have hosted any number of webinars um, with our state partners to get messages out to people, partnering with our federal colleagues as well. And I would I would jump in too, um, Emily. We we have a nice repository on our website, acl.gov. Again, is our website where we call out best practices that are um, really framed more programmatically because that's what we do. But it also I think is a nice indication of the resiliency that we're experiencing. And you know I think our our country is one of resilience. So um, just as we've confronted many other things in the past, and um, knock on wood, we probably have many things ahead of us that we can't yet forecast. 
um, we'll get through the pandemic. And, um, you know, again, I, I think that the stories as um, um, was just mentioned, you know, really are pretty amazing at how at the local level, folks are figuring out ways to kind of still address needs. I think for us, you know, the biggest thing I do worry about for older adults, particularly during the pandemic, is social isolation. And I say particularly because, sadly, social isolation is a real issue for us as gerontologists every day of the year, pandemic and non-pandemic. Um, because really, you can't stress enough how important it is just to have that warm touch, that reach out to make sure an older adult's doing okay, particularly for those that have been in extended periods of quarantining. And, you know, the health ramifications of that are, are just foreshadowing in terms of, uh, I know the impact that that's going to prove to be um, both for their physical and then, of course, their mental health. So I, I think for me, it's just so gratifying to hear of examples where, you know, even if it's a drive-by or people um, take, you know, colored pictures by school children on windows. I mean, whatever it takes, big or small, um, the impact of that, though, is enormous. And, and I think it all points towards that sign of we're not going to be an ostrich that just hunkers down and sticks our head in the sand. We're, we're going to work together arm in arm, and we're going to get through this. Well, arm in arm safely, and we're going to get through this. Thank you. Would anyone else like to add anything? Well, I think that's an excellent note to end on, um, that we will we are resilient people as Americans, and we will overcome this. And it's a great time to show some extra care to the seniors in your lives. Um, I want to remind everyone that at 3 p.m. today, we will have the release of the National Coronavirus Recovery Commission report. And that report has recommendations for everybody, not only for federal, state, and local policymakers, but for all of society, for civil society organizations, for families, and for individuals. So please tune in at 3 p.m. for that. And I want to thank each of our distinguished speakers for bringing your expertise, your knowledge and your wisdom to the webinar today. You've all provided such valuable contributions and you're on the front lines of protecting seniors. And so I thank you for your work. Thank you for joining us today. And thank you to all the audience uh, members who participated and asked questions. And please keep your questions coming. We are very interested in this topic and in how American civil society can best respond to the coronavirus. So please keep your questions coming. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.